Amen. Well, dear friends, we are walking through Luke chapter 6. We're in verses 27 through 36 this morning. Let me go ahead and read that, and we'll walk through this passage. It says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This portion that we're going to be walking through over the next couple uh, weeks is a portion of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke that is one of the more difficult to walk through. And it's very common for people to go to extremes in a passage like this to interpret the text in a way in which they would never possibly live their life or they definitely wouldn't live their life that way consistently or to go to another extreme and to pretty much ignore it all together. What I want to emphasize in this introductory sermon to this passage is that this passage needs to be interpreted within its context. We're going to walk through a series of points that I'm going to make that we need to think about. And the things that we're going to think about are going to apply not just to this passage, but to all passages of Scripture. They need to be interpreted within their historical context. They need to be interpreted within their local context. They need to be interpreted within the context of Scripture as a whole. And here in this passage, Jesus is telling you how it is you are to interact with those that hate you. How it is that you are to interact with those who are your enemies. Just prior to this, Jesus had stated in verses 22 and 23 of Luke chapter 6, it says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spur your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are you when others hate you. And we walked through this passage just recently. But how is it that you are to respond with these that hate you? How is it that I'm to respond with those that are despising me, that are persecuting me? That's what I want to introduce in this sermon. That's what I want to unpack in this passage, just to kind of clear the table and reset it so we can walk through this passage in an orderly way, and I'll be able to reference some of the things that I mentioned in this sermon as we walk through the particulars that Jesus lays out and how it is you are to interact with those that hate you and despise you, those who are your enemies. 
So number one, I want to say this. This passage must be interpreted within the context of Scripture as a whole. We've studied this idea before, the the idea of the analogy of Scripture, that, that passages in Scripture, even regardless of where they are in the timeline of Scripture, must be interpreted within the Scripture as a whole. So we don't just only have to go to a a passage that's right before the one that we're in to know what the passage means. I mean, for instance, if that's the perspective that we took, if we said we cannot understand anything about a passage except for what we know about that passage prior to that passage, what would we do with the very first sentence of Scripture? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what's our reference point there? Well, we have a reference point in the entirety of Scripture. We also have a reference point in the entirety of creation, whereby we can bring understanding to a passage like that. But in the analogy of Scripture, we understand that Scripture must be interpreted in light of the rest of the Scriptures. And so Jesus here is giving a command. He's commanding you how it is that you are to act. These aren't optional actions. You don't get to do this if you feel like it. We can't make this out to be something that is so high and mighty that none of us can ever reach. We can't make this out to be something that is, that is only for Christians. I'll unpack some of these as we keep going forward. But I want you to understand this first and foremost, that this is law. Jesus is giving a command. And therefore, Jesus is not contradicting the rest of God's law in the commands that he is giving here. When he's telling you to love your enemies, you're not neglecting everything else that the scriptures have said prior to this point. He's not putting forward a new idea here. Well, this is how you are to manage the property that God has given you stewardship over. You are going to just neglect everything that we have written prior to this. Just neglect what it says in the book of Proverbs about managing your money and only look at this and interpret it in a very literal way. No, look at this, verses 29 and 30 of Luke 6. It says, From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. We're going to walk through this specifically in the coming weeks. But I want to first just set the table here and say, we are not to interpret this in a way that contradicts other places in the Bible. He's giving a command here, and so we are to interpret this command through the law of God and understanding what the Lord has already taught us. Consider what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. What is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is, thou shalt not steal. All of us know that, right? What's required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment required the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. And so one of the things that is taught, and we've taught on this, so I'm not going to unpack it now, that one of the ways in which you're obedient to the Eighth Commandment of not stealing from others is to be someone who works in a way where you are profitable, where you are able to care for yourself. And you are to not only be profitable, but you're also to manage what the Lord has given to you. Gerald taught on the class, It's God's Money, and he emphasizes it many times, that what you have, you are given as a steward. You are one who is caring for what the Lord has given to you. None, nothing that we have is actually ours. We're given care over it. The Lord has put us over it. And the idea of a steward is basically someone who is, is, is basically like a lord 
of, a, of an area, a lord of a manor, is, is given, a, is put someone over the care of what he, what he owns, what he rules over. And that's the idea of the Lord, what he has given to us, what he's put under our care. We're stewards of that. We're caring for what the Lord has given to us or put under our care. And so we're not only to work heartily with our hands and be profitable, but we're also to manage what the Lord has given us. And the scriptures say much of this on how it is that we are to manage what the Lord gives to us. So we're not to understand what Jesus is saying here, that whenever someone says anything to you, we're just to just toss things out and have no care at all as to where it's going or what it is that we're to do with it. Continuing further, question 75 in the Westminster Shorter says, What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or our outward estate. Part of how it is that you're being obedient to the positive aspect of the Eighth Commandment is that you're rightly managing your affairs. So this is not a, a, a passage that's telling you that you're just to flippantly throw money around in different places without any thought of it. Some will take that idea. There's a homeless person who will walk by and they'll ask for something. You just will give him whatever he asks. But you don't actually do that. What happens a lot of times is a homeless person walks by and your desire is to make yourself feel better. So you will hand the person something at that time with no thought or understanding as to how the person is going to use that or what's going to happen with that. We're going to be held accountable in regard to how it is that we use what the Lord's given to us. Again, we're going to walk through this in more detail as we keep going. But regarding life, that's one that we touch on here as well. We must consider this in light of the sixth commandment. Verse 29 of Luke 6 says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Well, what does this mean as far as one's attacked? Are you just to allow someone to pummel you? To just meet, beat you within the pulpit? If someone else is attacked, are you just to allow that person just to be injured by the other person? Well, we are going to interpret a passage like this, of course, in its initial context, which we're going to walk through, but also in our understanding of the law of God. What is the sixth commandment? All right, this is the, this is the Heidelberg. It says, I am not... Or rather, um, what, is, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is, do not murder. I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look, my gesture. I'm certainly not by actual deeds. And I'm not to be party in this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. See, we're, we're kind of getting to the aspect of the sixth commandment that Jesus is going to be dealing with here within this passage. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. You see how the Heidelberg kind of gives us a little bit of a structure here on how we can understand a passage like this, that, that you are to protect the life of others, you are to care for the life of others, but at the same time, you are forbidden to take revenge or exact revenge upon another person, which is a place where we're going to end up landing within this passage. Furthermore, the Heidelberg says, does this commandment refer to only murder? No, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are um, disguised forms of murder. 
Lastly, question 107, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such a way? No, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly towards them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. We're going to end up um, reflecting upon this more as we keep going, but we need to understand, as I said, the passages that we're reading through the law of God. We need to understand this within its context as well. Luke 6 and verse 36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And that's, that's kind of what we have here. That's what's being emphasized. Luke, Jesus here, it, Luke's communicating what Jesus is saying about how it is the Christian is to deal with their enemies. How it is that you to deal with those that are persecuting you. How it is that you to deal with those who hate you. And you to remember how it is that God has dealt with you. That's the emphasis in verse 36 of Luke 6. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. How has God dealt with you? How has the Lord interacted with you? How has the Lord shown love and kindness and mercy upon you? Secondly, I want to emphasize this. This passage must be interpreted within its historical Context, And we'll give more illustrations on this and examples of this as we walk through. But looking at Leviticus 19 and verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first question that a Jewish person might ask themselves in the first century is, Well, then, who is my neighbor? Now give it a few chapters and we'll, we'll have to deal with this in great detail. But the Pharisees could look around and say, well, the Pharisee is my neighbor. These Sadducees are not my neighbor. These are liberals. These Essenes are not my neighbor. They are far off in, in the desert. I am not a part of them. Well, the Essenes could say, well, the Essenes are my neighbor. The Pharisees are not my neighbor. The Sadducees are not my, my neighbor. So if I'm required to love my neighbor... Therefore, I could say, if I'm to love my neighbor, I am to hate my enemies. I am to hate the one who is not my neighbor. This is a way in which it was actually interpreted. This is what Jesus is dealing with here in this passage, is this idea that I can love my neighbor, I can love those that are of my people, but those who are not of my people, those who are not my neighbor, are those that I am to, to hate. There's many passages that they might look to to support this kind of view. Nahum 1 and verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his, for his adversaries, for his enemies. And so one would say, well, the Lord has hatred for a people. The Lord is angry with this people. I likewise should have that same anger and that hatred. This is crossing many different boundaries that will unpack. They might look at Psalm 7 and verse 11. God's a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And there's entire theologies that are created around this idea where you can determine who your neighbors are and those are the ones that you can love. Who are the people that you are to love and then the others over here who you are to hate. In fact... The theology went so far with some in the first century that they actually taught 
that showing love and kindness to Gentiles was actually sinful, that you were sinning and doing that, that those were outsiders, that those were dogs, and you were to in no way have love, kindness, or fellowship with any of them. When you understand it through this lens, you can see why so many of the Jewish leaders were angry with Jesus' behavior. This man is eating and drinking with sinners. These men are around Gentiles, right? And, and you, can, you see even this kind of as a, as a joke in Fiddle of the Roof. You see the, the one man that comes up to the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, is there a, is there a prayer for the czar? And he says in a joking manner, well, the prayer for the czar is that we pray that the czar would stay far from us. But this, this could all make life easier. You know, if, if all I have to do is just reclassify someone, I can determine who it is I get to love and who it is that I don't. I could even be, it could even be someone in my group. If I'm a Pharisee, I could say I could even... I could even stratify the Pharisees, or I could even subdivide the Pharisees and say, well, you're this kind of a Pharisee over here. I don't have to show love and kindness to you. In fact, then we can get really righteous there. Instead, by even showing love and kindness there, I'm actually benefiting you. I'm actually helping you. Now, dear friends, I I pray that you've seen this in the preaching over the years, that, that the Christians in a culture, the Christians in a society are actually a blessing even to that pagan society. We saw that as we preached through Genesis and saw the life of Joseph. We saw that as we preached through the book of Daniel and saw Daniel and the other uh, young Jewish men and how they were a blessing amongst the people there in that pagan foreign country. The desire is not that the whole thing just burns down. It's actually a theology that's, that's getting some steam nowadays. Really what we need is for this whole thing just to burn down and then the Christians will come and take it over. That's not the eschatology that we should have. Our desire is to be a blessing in the people where we are at this time and to serve God and to serve man. And that's the reality of what Christians have been throughout the centuries. Islam has an example like this. Islam will take it so far has to say, at least certain groups in Islam will say, if you are not Muslim, it is okay for me to lie to you. It is okay for me to violate in certain ways. You aren't deserving of truth. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's even subdivisions there. Well, you're not in my particular group over here so that I can treat you in that same way. Such a system makes man the arbiter of who is worthy of love and affection. This is very contrary to how the Lord dealt with Israel. The Lord showed kindness to Israel. Why? Because they were such a, a holy people? Because they, they were so worthy of his love and kindness? No, they were not. They were a people that even when they were pulled out of Egypt, it took 40 years to pull the Egypt out of them. And then even when they went into the promised land, it was for many years that every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And then even when a great king was established, it didn't take many generations after that for it to descend into civil war and for the people to be taken out into captivity. No, the Lord showed his love to Israel just as he showed his love to us, people who were undeserving, people who were unworthy of the love and kindness that he showed. So we'll look at this passage and they will say, look, this teaching is for Christians. This is, a, this is for Christians. This is how Christians are 
to act. It's not something that applies to all people everywhere. That's not how the law of God works. That's not how we understand the law of God. It's not like, okay, you're Christians. You're the few. You're the proud. You're the Marines. And this is what's expected. God certainly does expect much of you. To much who has been given, much is expected. I I don't deny that reality. But it's not as though there's a special law for Christians. And then for other people, other places, they have a different law. There is the law of God. And as Reformed people, we understand that the law of God is given to us by God's kindness. He's showing to us the best way in which we can live. Others will look at this and they'll say, look, this is for, for individuals. Individuals will live by this. Individuals will love their enemies. Individuals will show kindness to others. Individuals will be benevolent. This is not how nation states should live. Nation states aren't to live this way. Nation states are going to have war. Nation states are, are going to have to operate in certain ways that are going to contradict this passage. And I would, I would argue that this is, and I hope to show this as the weeks continue, that this would be to not quite understand this in the way in which Jesus is speaking. Because those that run a nation state, those who are over a nation, are actually people. There, there's, there's, there's men and women that are, that are ruling and running nations. And so it's not as though we can divorce a nation from the people that are actually running it or even the people that are being represented by that nation, which, let's be honest, for the most part, is a representation of the people that are there within that nation. No, very much you should even be loving to your enemies as one who is a nation state, knowing that nations go to war and there can be legitimate reasons for war. And I would, I, would, I would use this as a small example of where I would apply this. I would say when you look at World War I when it ended and you had the Treaty of Versailles and you see the ways in which the West and France most especially sought to exact reparations from Germany and put so much pressure upon them and put so much difficulty upon them that they sent the economy of Germany into just a tailspin. We see what happened after that. We can look at it in hindsight and be so brilliant and say, that's what happens when you do that. Well, we see what happened with the Third Reich rising uh, as the Weimar Republic fell. And so much of that, I believe, could have been avoided if there had been a better understanding of how it is that you deal with even your enemies, how it is that you deal with those that have wronged you, those that have hurt you. I think this very much would apply in the ways in which nations may interact one with another. Um, Some would take passages like this and, and run it into a very pacifistic mindset and say, look, Jesus is teaching here that, that warfare is wrong. We should never have warfare with anyone else. So you have some that would extend over here and say this doesn't apply to a nation state. And some that would go over here and say this absolutely applies to a nation state. And so war is wrong and war should not be allowed. One, uh, one, one lyric I want to quote from a, an artist named Derek Webb. The song is called My Enemies Are Men Like Me. He says, how can I kill the ones that I'm supposed to love? My enemies are men like me. I will protest the sword if it's not wielded well. My enemies are men like me. Peace by way of war is like purity by way of fornication. It's like telling someone murder is wrong and then showing them by way of execution. And that some of these things sound really nice and you can sing them and they're very easy to sing. 
songs like this when you're in a peaceful environment, when there's been peace established in the country that you're in, and you're free just to declare these things. I mean, honestly, go and stand in the midst of Mecca in Saudi Arabia and just freely declare Christian lyrics and see how far you're going to get there. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged. At the very least, you're going to get deported. It could be much worse than that. But even someone that may say we need to interpret a passage like this in that way is going to call the police when they're robbed. They're going to call the police when when someone is being violent against someone else. And then you have this idea that is happening even now. And this is a very serious problem. And there's this hermeneutical battle that people will begin to put, well, this Bible passage against this Bible passage. And the very postmodern way of understanding Scripture is beginning to come forward where people, and it's actually not new, but it's new to many people nowadays. And they will say, what you do, you don't need to look at the Bible alone and understand the Bible as, you know, the way in which we're, we're, we're having our standing and our foundation. But you need to look at Jesus. You need to look at the story of Jesus. You need to look at the resurrection and the stories that are being told about Jesus rather than dealing with these particular stories because some of the people are finding difficulty. They're finding a passage like this and then they're seeing passages in the Old Testament where God very clearly commanded war, where God very clearly commanded the killing of other people and they're saying there's a tension here, there's a difficulty here. What people tend to do in those circumstances is just pick what they desire the most. Pick what makes them feel most comfortable. And I'd say one of the people that is that is most egregious in this area and has one of the loudest, loudest megaphones on this is a man named Andy Stanley. He's a pastor of a very large church, and he began to make an argument that we should no longer say the Bible says. You know, how often do you say that? Someone might ask you something, and you say, well, the Bible says. He very strongly tries to argue that you should never make the statement the Bible says. There's so many errors in what I'm about to read here. But he says this. He says, for the first 350 years of Christianity, no preacher or teacher said the Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible says. There was no such thing as the Bible. Obviously, there was scripture. But they did not, especially in the first century, build the Christian faith on the back of a text. Nobody could read. Nobody owned one. What drove the first century was an event. Well, um, Almost a quarter of the New Testament is actually the Old Testament. Just to put that little statistic out there for you. Over a quarter of the New Testament is quotations or allusions to the, the Old Testament. So th- there is no, there's no unhitching or separating the Old Testament and the New Testament. They very much did stand upon the scriptures. Stanley goes on to say this. Your whole house of the Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. And the question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And the eyewitnesses said that he did. Of course, one of the big problems with the statement that he just made there is the fact that that information is coming from the New Testament, with the exception of a few other places where you may find Josephus saying that people believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. The primary place that we get the information about the resurrection of Christ is within the Bible. This idea... That the Old Testament of cards could just come tumbling down and you still have this event. You absolutely cannot. Jesus came forward not speaking of himself, 
but standing upon the prophecies that were declared about him, even from the earliest pages of Scripture. He goes on to argue that we must unhitch the Old Testament from the New. He says, unhitching the Old Testament from the New is liberating for men and women who are drawn to the simple message that God loves you so much that he sent his son to pave the way to a relationship with you. It's liberating for people who need to understand grace, who need to understand forgiveness, and it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic worldview and value system depicted in the story of ancient Israel. This is very disturbing. This is a man who went to a conservative Baptist seminary, and this is what he is espousing. He is espousing what is worse than a lot of that came out of liberalism in the last century. You cannot unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Jesus is a man who was predicted to come from the line of Judah. He was predicted to come from the line of David. You can't separate him from ancient Israel. What we must do in these passages is just do the difficult work. And we must work through them and try to understand them in a systematic way and understand them in a biblical way and understand the passages together and it's very very important that we understand passages like this in their context immediately in the scriptures as a whole and most especially in their historical context because the authors are expecting that you'll do that the authors are expecting that you are going to interpret a passage of scripture within its local context within the context of redemptive history as a whole and also within the context of history at that time, you can't take a passage like this and, and, and be literal and rigid in a way that discounts the historical setting, that discounts what the people at the time would have understood. You cannot just be me in my Bible under a tree and I will read this and I will interpret this, whatever it means to me, and not take into account what the rest of Scripture says not take into account what the local historical setting is. Self-defense, I say all this says self-defense in the defense of others is appropriate. We walk through that in the catechism questions. It is appropriate to have self-defense for yourself and for other people. It's a biblical thing. To, 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 to not do that at certain times when you should is going to be a violation of the sixth commandment. Because part of the sixth commandment is to care for the life of others. If I'm not going to murder, I'm, it's not only that I'm going to interpret this in a pharisaical way and just say, I've never actually killed anyone with my hands. That's not to rightly understand this. I'm going to understand this from the heart, but there's also going to be a positive aspect of this. Just like when Paul talked about what you should do, that you should be one who doesn't steal, but not only should you not steal, you should also work with your hands in such a way that you are profitable so that you can give to other people. That's understanding the negative and the positive aspects of the Eighth Commandment. The same is true with the Sixth Commandment. Not only am I going to not murder people, I'm also going to live in a way where I'm not endangering others and where I'm protecting other people. So I'm going to be careful with how I drive my car because I'm endangering my life, I'm endangering the people in my car, and I'm endangering the life of the other people on the road beside me if I'm not cautious and careful in how I'm driving my car. That's the purpose, or at least that's supposed to be the purpose of the traffic laws that we have in our culture. Jesus is not one 
who is teaching in this passage that you are never to defend yourself or you're never to defend other people. I can look just a few chapters later in Luke 22 and see a contradiction there if we take that perspective in this passage. Luke 22 in verses 35 through 38. He says this. He's about to send the disciples out. He says, and he says to them, when I send you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they looked and said, look, Lord, we have, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Yeah, this is the same Jesus that is saying here in this passage in verses 28 and 29, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you to the one strikes you on a cheek, offer the other also, and the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and to the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And so the purpose of the sword here, and we see this in other passages, is the idea is, is in the event of a robbery or the attack. That's the purpose of a sword. A sword is, is a weapon. A sword is used for the purpose of attacking another person. You could use it to cut down a tree, but that's not the main purpose of a sword. A sword is primarily designed for that purpose, the defense of a person um, when another person is, is attacking them. And it is deemed appropriate here. Jesus even tells them to take a sword. He is not taking a pacifist stance. He's not saying anytime someone tries to steal something from you, you need to just let anyone have it. If someone comes into your house, just give them all of your stuff. If someone's coming into your house and they're robbing your family or they're using the gun in your house towards your family and they run out of bullets and they say, give me some more bullets and you just hand them some more bullets? Absolutely not. That is a, a, a literal interpretation of a passage that is taking it out of its context. It's not rightly understanding it. Peter wasn't at fault for having a sword or using a sword in defense of someone else, all right? What we have here is him seeking to defend the kingdom of God or further the kingdom of God with a sword. That's not the means through which the kingdom of God goes forward. There are many in history that have believed that, that soldiers going forward are going to expand the kingdom of God. You have the, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, as it was called. That was the idea that we're expanding Christendom at this time by, by, by running over others. The Crusades going downward as the people were going around pillaging and destroying. It got so bad during the Crusades that many of the Eastern Christians were aligning themselves with Muslims for the purpose of defending themselves. That's not how the kingdom of God is spread. The kingdom of God is not spread through the sword. It's not spread through our political influence. Political influence is important. It's not to be ignored. You're not to live in a way that discounts the importance of political influence it, it's it's absolutely important it's crucial it's something we should be involved in it's not our hope lastly i want to emphasize this in regard to self-defense or even just turning the other cheek jesus didn't turn the other cheek we see that in john 18 we preached through this before but john 18 19 through 24 it says this the high priest then questioned jesus about his disciples and his teaching Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have oft, always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard 
me and what I, I said to them. They know what I've said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus does not turn the other cheek. He doesn't just turn the other cheek and say nothing. No, instead he, he responds to what the man did. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anias then sent him and bound him to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we need to understand this within the scriptures as a whole and even the story that we have within this gospel as a whole. Thirdly, and this is a very important one because this is one that maybe none of you have ever struggled with this, but this is a passage that has been difficult for other people, people that have been hurt by others. They find living a passage out like this to be very difficult. It says So number three, I want to say this. We must not place burdens that go beyond this passage. So Jesus here says, love your enemies. Verse 27 and 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And we need to understand this through the lens of biblical love, not the Americanized version of love. Americanized version of love is going to emphasize very much upon the feelings and where you are and where you're in the and, and almost the, the fuzziness that you may have towards someone else or that, that tingling feeling that you may have. And in other languages, there's going to be different kinds of loves that are expressed. We don't have that so much in our language. We have maybe like and love, and that's as, as much depth as we have. However, when someone talks about someone or something that they love, you're able to view it through the right lens. If I tell you that I love pizza... You're understanding that in a certain way that I love pizza in a way that's different than the way that I love my dog or I love my children in a certain way or I I love my job in another way or I love my wife. Each of these you're able to look at that through a certain lens to interpret it through what I'm what I'm I'm meaning there. And so the same is true for us that the love you have for others isn't the same for all people everywhere. It's not going to be expressed in the same way for all people everywhere. And the emotions that you have that follow in that aren't going to be the same for all people everywhere. God's love is not the same for all people everywhere. That's a controversial statement. I know for many of you it's not controversial, but God's love is not the same for all people everywhere. We have an understanding of what's known as common grace. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. You know, I, rain falling is something that I noticed as, as a child. It was a really big deal to my father. And I never did under, I always thought it was really odd. He'd be talking about the weather or when it hadn't been raining very much. He was talking about how he, we needed rain or he wanted rain or he'd be dragging the sprinkler out there to water the grass. And I hadn't really thought about it too much until I bought a house that needed sod and we put sod in. And it was a time where there was a, a sod shortage and I became very concerned about the rain because we were watering it on a regular basis that was costing money. And when it rained, that's what was actually better for the grass. I didn't want to lose all the money I had put into it. I didn't have to go out there and manually remove all of the sod that we just installed. But the rain that falls, it, it didn't just, it's not like, okay, well, you're a Christian, so the rain just fell on my yard. No, the, the, the rain falls all over the place. The, the rain falls on the righteous and 
the unrighteous. The rain falls upon children of God. The rain falls upon children of the devil. We see this idea communicated in Psalm 104, beginning in verse 10. This is one of the, this is a very, there's many passages we go to. This is a great one to look at that, beginning in verse 10 and through, I'd say, 17. It's speaking of God's common grace, it says, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause grass to grow for the livestock, the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The mountains are for the wild goats. And the rocks are refuge for the rock badgers. We have this idea of the Lord and his care for creation. And the blessing that he gives to creation. We have that as well communicated by Paul in Acts chapter 14 and you, you have Paul and Barnabas that are there and they have been speaking and they, they, they just did a miracle and the people go and say the gods have come down among us in the likeness of men and they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was, he was a great speaker and they went to go and perform a sacrifice in their honor. They're bringing animals down to go and sacrifice them to sacrifice these animals to um, to Paul and to Barnabas, thinking that they're Zeus and Hermes. And, and Paul says this in verse 15. He says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of a like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. The people were still determined, even though these, these gods they believed they were, were telling them not to offer these sacrifices. They were determined there that they knew better than these gods that they thought were before them. But the key there to emphasize is what we're seeing there in verse 17, that he was good to them, that even though they were far off, even though they, they were not worshiping God, God was still blessing them. God was still watering their plants. God was still giving them food. And that's the sad aspect of it, that the Lord, as he blesses even ungodly men, the Lord, as he blesses those that are unrighteous, they take what he gives to them and use what the Lord gives for the purpose of committing idolatry, for the purpose of dishonoring, for violating even the law of God. What they were bringing forward at this time to practice this idolatrous act, to go and, and worship the creation rather than the creator at this time, is, is what the Lord had given to them. This is the fruit of what the Lord had, had provided and the Lord was, was good to them at this time. But we can see these passages about the Lord and his disposition toward the unrighteous and the way in which he blesses those that are not worshipers of him. And we can also see other passages 
that talk about the Lord's disposition toward those who are unrighteous. Psalm 25 and 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he has made known to them his covenant. There is a, a special love that is there between God and his people, but we see in other passages, like Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. God had showed love to Esau. God had allowed him to prosper, allowed him to grow, allowed him to be a powerful man. The rain fell upon him. He became a a wealthy man in, in many ways, but his special love was not upon him. Esau was a man who was an idolater. Esau was a man who was worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. Psalm, rather, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 5 and this is Paul here speaking about about the Israelites and God's disposition towards some of them that were there in the wilderness he says I do not want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were all under a cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and at the rock of Christ. Nevertheless, he says this, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So God had been showing blessing to them. He had been giving them water out of the rocks. He had been sending manna to them. He had been protecting them from the elements. Their shoes continued to, their sandals did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. They were prospering. They were multiplying. But God was not pleased with them. There was a a distinction that is there. And and likewise, the the same is is true there. That you are to be benevolent and you are to be kind to all people. You are to be loving to all people. But this is not saying that you have to have the, 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 the emotions and the feelings that you have toward a member of your family or toward your spouse, towards someone who is persecuting you, towards someone who, who, is, who, who is your enemy, towards someone that, that perhaps you should not even have any dealings with in your life anymore. Those are, those are realities. You can still pray for the person. You can still be loving toward them. But that doesn't mean that these emotions need to be there. And that's, that's, that's where people have gotten stuck on a passage like this. Is they say, well, I'm having trouble loving the person here. Well, this, isn't, this, is, this doesn't have to have that emotional attachment that you're associating. We're looking at this as a verb at this point and doing what is best for that person, not exacting vengeance upon the person um, in leaving that for the Lord. Number four, and we've hit on this slightly, we must not ignore this teaching in other parts of Scripture. Um, that We'll talk about more of them. I mentioned one last week, Jewish curses that were prayed against Gentiles. It was, it was, it was even a benediction that I read. So that's how they're ending their service, is, is ending their service at the synagogue and cursing the Gentiles that are out there and cursing the Roman Empire Now, consider how that's different from what we see in Romans 13. Consider how that's different and how we are praying for those that are ruling over us and the Lord has sovereignly placed over us. This doesn't mean that there's never a time for an imprecatory prayer, but we're not, what we're doing is we're not cursing people and that's not not what's happening at that time. We are to be loving and desire to be peaceful amongst the people where the Lord has placed us. I want to say this here, and that is that Jesus isn't bringing something, something new here. 
What Jesus is communicating in this passage isn't like, well, this has never existed in the scriptures. And, and everything that came before this is contrary to this. Sometimes people understand the Sermon on the Mount that way. Like the, in the Old Testament, it said this, but now Jesus is giving you something completely new that wasn't in the Old Testament. No, Jesus is unpacking the law of God. Jesus is applying the law of God. And Jesus is applying the law of God here. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see his donkey, the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So this is someone that is your enemy, and you are, this is someone that, that you are at odds with at this time. And so your desire is not, let me do all that I can to destroy this person's life, but rather I am to be a blessing to this person at this time. I am to be helpful to the person at this time. Proverbs 25 in verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heat burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So we see almost the same idea being communicated by Jesus here in Luke 6 that we had communicated in Proverbs and Exodus. And we could point this out in many other passages. Most specifically, we see the Apostle Paul apply this concept in Romans chapter 12 when we see that beginning in verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. You see how he emphasizes the other side of that. Don't curse them. That's, that's what you're taught to do. Don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Then he continues, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's not discounting the fact that there's going to be difficulty and there's going to be strife. Number nine, verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. You see him there applying that passage in Proverbs. Do not become by, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. First Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 12, he says, We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, a refuse of all things. First Peter 3 and verse 9 do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain the blessing. Fifthly, don't miss the focus of this passage. This is where I want to land the plane on this and, and, and pick it back up next time. And that's on verse 36. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. God has shown us mercy. God has shown us kindness. And so that is what that this is the lens we need to be viewing these things. Romans 8, beginning in verse 7, says, For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's all of us. All of us were there. All of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us were enemies of God. All of us were at enmity with God. 
But God showed kindness to us. Romans 5, beginning of verse 6, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the mercy that's been shown to us. That's the kindness that has been shown to us. We were enemies of God. We were in alliance with Satan against the Lord. We were born into this alliance. We strove against the Lord in our sin. The Lord would grant us blessings. The Lord would send us rain. The Lord would send us goodness. The Lord would grant us promotions. The Lord would give us things that we desired. And we would take even the things that he gave us to sin against him more and more and more. But God showed his love to us. God showed his kindness to us. And this is, this, is, this is the mindset that we need to have. This, this, this is the lens that we need to be, to be looking for, looking through, rather. This cannot be Haskell and McCoy's, where you have a, a, a fight going on, a feud going on between families for generation after generation after generation. We cannot be viewing the solution to the problems in this world and our culture through Marxist ideologies, through a social justice mindset. We must view it through the cross. We must view these things and remember who the Lord is and what he has done to us. It's only there that you can have the unity that we have and the diversity that we have within the church. It's only there that you can have people from so many backgrounds, different social standings, different levels in government, different powers in society, different wealth, you know, different people of different standings and wealth, but granted together pulled together, united together, not for any of these things. United together not because of ethnicity, united together not because of their social standing or their wealth. Certainly in churches, people tend to speak the same language, and so you're going to have certain things that have similarities. That's a reality. Churches are local. The church university, universally, absolutely, that's not the case. But God has called the people from all people everywhere and united them in Christ Jesus. It's there that we see the hope. It's there that we see the peace that God has given. And dear friend, I pray that you would be mindful of what I'm saying. I pray that you'd be mindful of even what we've, what we've covered over this time and seeing the ways in which God has shown love to his people. I pray you would see the ways in which you, you violated God's law. The ways in which the, the, even the commandments that I talked about earlier the, do not steal. The ways in which you have not rightly kept that commandment. The ways in which you've taken that which the Lord has not granted to you. You've desired to be God in your own eyes, to be your own sovereign at these times. The ways in which you violated even the sixth commandment. Jesus says in the Sermon on the you hate someone unrighteously. If you have unrighteous anger towards someone, that's even in the Old Testament where that's said. You're, you're guilty of murder. God is looking at the heart. We can put on a show outwardly, but the Lord is looking at the heart. And when we emphasize the law and we talk about the law, we talk about the ways in which we fall short of the law. The purpose is not to tell you that there's no hope whatsoever. The purpose is to tell you that there's no hope in yourself. There's no hope through man's religion. There's no hope through your own efforts. There's no hope 
through your own deeds. It is to bring you to an end in yourself. That you would say, this law is so high, this law is so great, I cannot even begin to begin to begin to meet this law. But you're not left there. As I said, God has shown kindness. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. And this is what Jesus did. And and understand this. Jesus took upon himself the consequences of our sins. Jesus took upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God that everyone deserves. So rightly deserve the wrath of God to fall upon you. The end of John 3 says, all who are not believing upon the Son, the wrath of God is over them. Do you believe that, dear friend? All who do not believe upon the Son, the wrath of God is over them. And that is because the wrath of God has not been dealt with rightly. You must believe upon the Son. In believing upon the Son of Jesus Christ, in believing upon what he has done, you're understanding that he has taken upon the wrath of God on your behalf, and he has fulfilled the law in every respect. So he not only takes upon the wrath of God, but he also fulfills the law in every respect that you may have his righteousness, that you may be clothed in his righteousness. That is the active and passive obedience of Jesus. Jesus takes upon himself the wrath of God, his passive obedience. Jesus fulfills the law in every respect that is his active obedience. That you can die, dear friend, and stand before the Lord and approach the throne of God. Boldly, we sing. Boldly approach the throne of God. Not with fear and trepidation. Wearing the righteousness of Jesus. Having the same right to be there as as Jesus does. Because you're standing there on his righteousness. You're clothed in his righteousness. This cannot come about through your own actions. This cannot come about through your own religious activity. This can not come about by you trying to cleanse your own garments and make yourself pure and clean through your religious activities. You stain yourself even more in doing that. It is offensive to God. You are trying to bribe God. And you're giving him a very low bribe. You're giving him what what the scriptures say are filthy rags. No, turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Believe upon what he has done. Trust in him as as the means God has given whereby you can be saved as the one who has taken upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God and the one who has fulfilled the law in every respect. Jesus says, whoever comes to him, he will in no way cast out. Dear friends, come to Jesus. Trust on him. Believe upon him.